In the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. In the kingdom of the paranoid, the one-eyed man is a spy. This is Paranoid Planet. I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. Esta nunca ha sido dictadura, señores. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Our enemies are innovative and resourceful, and so were we. They never stop thinking about new ways to harm our country and our people, and neither do we. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. I'm not going to give you a question. You are fake news. Silent Green is people! Welcome to episode 6.4b of Paranoid Planet. This is the second part of episode 6.4, featuring our conspiracy road trip through the great states of Oklahoma, Missouri, Illinois, and Ohio. So if you haven't heard part A yet, I recommend you go back and listen to it. But it's your life. You can do whatever you want. Just as long as you're well aware that the boss, hey, don't look too kindly on wise guys who aren't team players, you know. Am I right or am I right? I think I'm right. What draws my admiration? What is that which gives me joy? Thanks. Baseball. A man. A man stands alone at a plate. This is the time for what? For individual achievement. There he stands alone. But in the field, what? Part of a team. This team don't field. What is he? You follow me? No one. Sunny Day stands up full of fans. What does he have to say? I'm going out there for myself. <laughs> but I get nowhere unless the team wins. Team. This episode of Paranoid Planet is brought to you by Cosimo's old-fashioned cleaning, pest control, and investment services. Serving the south side of Chicago, the bungalow belt, and the greater Lake Michigan area since 1902. Hey, my name is Vinny Linguini, great-great-grandson on my mom's side of the great Giovanni Cosimo, who founded our family business back in the old country. So I'm here to make you an offer you can't refuse. Because if you refuse it, well, I ain't responsible for what comes next, if you know what I'm saying. You got bugs in your house? We'll give it a good scrub. 
take out the trash, and set a torch to the nest they came out of. No questions asked, no questions answered, discretion assured. Or maybe you got a nosy rat sneaking around your business. We'll drop that dirty vermin down an elevator shaft so high it won't never gonna bother you, nor the missus, nor the other missus. Or maybe you got a mole sneaking around your garden. Well, we'll dig him out, break his fingers, fit that snitch with a snug pair of cement shoes, and send him on a pleasure cruise out on Lake Michigan, if you know what I mean. Bada bing, bada boom, whack em all. We also clean out your closets from any unwanted, you know, skeletons, and store any traceable works of art you'd like to keep safe from nosy Uncle Sam. Our rates are cutthroat, no kidding. And should you like to make a sizable sports-related investment that won't attract undue attention from the Elliot Nesses of this world, well, we can help you with that too. Heck, we'll even loan you the money up front. And if you call us before February 14th, you can take advantage of our St. Valentine's Day spring cleaning special with a 7-for-1 sale, not including the cleanup fees. That's Cosimo's old-fashioned Italian family cleaning, best control, and investment services. Tell them Vinny sent you and get a free kneecapping on the house. Chapter 3 Elvis Has Left the Building In this installment of our Great American Conspiracy Roadshow, we'll visit the University of Chicago, go to the beach and catch a ball game, visit the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and meet up with Professor Emeritus Michael Barkin of Syracuse University, the author of A Culture of Conspiracy, Apocalyptic Visions in Contemporary America. And now for all you Chicago stay-up-laters, you... Night owls who only come alive after dark. We dedicate this tune, Chicago After Midnight. <laughs> Good night, folks. It is Monday. June 21st. Is it the summer solstice or is that tomorrow? Well, either way, it's got to be one of the longest days of the year. Uh, it is almost 9 a.m. and uh, I drove from my uh, hostel down to the University of Chicago where I found what I think is free parking, though there's a sign that says uh, people's gas no parking construction zone, but the dates are all wrong, so I'm going to take a chance. Uh, today I'm meeting with uh, Dr. Royce Lee, who was uh, featured in one of our earlier episodes of Paranoid Planet when we talked about paranoia. Uh, he and some colleagues uh, and I are going to be chatting about paranoia, uh, both as an historian and as psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, to see if we can uh, share notes and find out what we can learn both from the Kennedy assassination and, and other uh, historical cases about um, what makes people uh, fearful of things that are not visible or provable. Um, so that's what the plan is for today. Uh, I don't know what happened later on. I did drive through the city a little bit this morning. Very nice. I saw the skyline. I went for a walk last night and, and photographed the, the, the fountain uh, near the water uh, side of Lake Michigan. Uh, all very lovely. And I found myself underneath the uh, the L train, where uh, Spider-Man fought that uh, octopus guy 
and where I think just about everything Batman does weaves in and out of under that uh, train and I heard it overnight so it was interesting it was like being in the movies uh, a place that I've I recognize from so many movies and yet had never been to before you are just an ordinary man in a cape that's why you couldn't fight injustice and that's why you can't stop this train who said anything about stopping it Hello, it is, uh, what is it today? It's uh, Thursday? Wednesday? Tuesday the 21st. Tuesday the 21st. It is uh, 8.30 p.m. and I'm here with uh, the great and the only Dr. Royce Lee. Hello, Royce. Hey, how are you? Welcome back to the Paranoid Planet. I'm glad to be back on the planet. I am now on your planet in Chicago. So where's this place you've taken me to? Uh, the dock at Montrose Harbor. And is this where you go to, to buy your meth? Uh, well, this is where I go to watch all of the Chicagoans buy their meth. It's like a chaotic beach, all sorts of people, noises, all things going on, going, like, yeah, it's, it's chaos over here. Yeah. And, and then after that, you have, they come and consult with you the next day to find out how to change that meth for some better medication. Uh, usually I bring my kids out here to watch the chaos. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So they're, they're learning Breaking Bad in person. That's right. That's right. Uh, so this morning, I really thank you. You had me over in your department, and I don't know if I made a fool of myself, but uh, I, I present a little bit about my research. Uh, tell us a little bit, just quickly, for those who haven't heard your episode yet, they can always go to episode 1.2. Uh, what is it that you do at the University of Chicago? Uh, so I, let's see, uh, my areas of research are trauma, personality disorder, and I've got a specific, I wouldn't call it a hobby, but... Uh, uh, a particular interest in paranoia, not necessarily psychosis, but kind of mistrust and suspiciousness. Who would you say is your favorite paranoid individual in the media or history? Ooh, I act, that's an interesting, well, okay, now I know the answer. That would be Philip K. Dick. Great choice. We've talked about Philip K. Dick before. Uh, and what is it about Philip K. Dick that drew you to, uh, to study uh, uh, paranoia more closely? Well, I guess he he was an interesting person himself, and um, there's a bit of a you know stop clock telling the right time twice a day thing. Where, although by all accounts he seems mentally ill and proclaimed, he talks openly about it. At the same time, he gets essential things right sometimes, and that creates that's kind of an uncanny thing to see happen. Uh, for those who are not familiar, um, I talked about Philip K. Dick in episode zero of our podcast. Uh, talked a bit about one of his stories, uh, so you can go back there and get kind of the uh, the skinny on on who he was as a science fiction author. Now, as a psychiatrist, what would you say is the scariest or weirdest thing that that happens or has happened to you? 
Wow, did you did you just generate that question? I just invented it off the top of my head, but I did ask it of a tour guide in uh, in Missouri yesterday, so it's not that original. Oh, I see. Okay, well, hold on. Um, I mean, there are seriously scary things that happen to psychiatrists. We're the most likely to be murdered and assaulted. Uh, but I would say something like that. So being in a small room with somebody who threatens me or family, it happens occasionally. And usually it's just an issue in therapy. So I've been lucky so far, but um, that's so that's a, that's a, a occupational hazard for sure. Have you ever had to throw a punch? Uh, no, but I've heard of that happening, and I've, we've thought through these issues, like, you know, when, when are you ethically allowed to defend yourself and so forth. It's an issue, yeah. So hypothetically, say I was a person who, who needs psychological help, and I become incredibly aggressive, and I pull some sort of blunt weapon from my shirt or whatever, uh, what's your favorite uh, way to, uh, to neutralize me? Run away. Run away. That wouldn't neutralize me. I'd just come at you with a, with a knife. Well, you know, I'd keep talking and I'd back out. So that, that would be one thing. I wouldn't, like, show my back to you. But I'd just keep talking to you and, like, back out as quickly as I could. I, that's the only thing I can think of. But the, uh, the other things that, we'll, that I'll do is I'll, I'll sit down and ask the person to sit down. People behave differently once they're sitting down. And the other thing that usually works is... Uh, telling people, hey, look, if you're if this mad, probably talking is not a good idea. Why don't we just stop? That's, that's very sensible, as opposed to, say, pulling a roundhouse kick, uh, Chuck right, Norris. Stuff. Right, right. Usually what, for us as psychiatrists, what gets us in trouble is when we try to make somebody talk who doesn't want to. They don't trust us or they're psychotic. Uh, and we're not, like, picking up on their body language. We keep on thinking, well, maybe if I ask the question a different way, it'll go better. That's often what, what goes wrong. Now here's my ultimate question. This is the question of my entire trip in the United States. Are Americans paranoid? And if so, are they more paranoid than the rest of the world? Ah, okay. So that's, that's, that is a, a tough one because you're asking me to, you know, calculate prior probability of Americans being more paranoid than the rest of the world, which is uh, going to be unknowable for me. So what I would say is... Probably yes, and I think that's what's always been interesting to me about the country. Like, um, you know, so for, I was talking with a friend about this recently, for every annoying thing that you can think of. Annoying like those uh, people beeping over sure. there. <laughs> or, you know, give X cultural phenomena. There's always another part of America that's doing something totally different. And so if you don't like something, you can always find some other group of people doing something. So in that sense, maybe so. Maybe there's, there's always kind of factions and hidden currents. and th I, I think that's interesting. It is the land of freedom, which means the freedom to associate in multiple small groups who don't necessarily see uh, the country the same way or even the meaning of life the same way. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. And uh, you've been in Canada? I have. I live right next to Canada. Yeah. How paranoid are Canadians? Probably not paranoid enough. I, that's what I, I think what most Americans would think, like remarkably not paranoid. That's what I think. Should we be more afraid of Americans? I wouldn't know. Um, you know, so my, my closest encounters with this would, would be Canadians coming to America for deals, shopping. And in that sense, yes, they, they probably should have been more paranoid because there were no deals where I lived. It was bad, bad, bad merchandise.
My last question is, since I, uh, I gave a speech to a group of psychiatrists this morning in the psychiatry department, does that mean that now I can prescribe myself some Prozac? Yes, it does. Like, I've, I'm, a huge, I'm a huge proponent of making antidepressants, um, you know, regulated but not requiring a doctor's approval. So. Available to all podcasters. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Just like Philip K. Dick. That's right. Yeah, here I come. I'll be writing some great novels. Good luck. <laughs> Thanks, Royce. It was great to talk to you again, and in person this time. It's been fun, and we'll have you. We'll have you come back for a conspiracy and paranoia palooza. It's in the making. I can't wait for it. Good morning. It is uh, almost 9 a.m. on uh, what is today? I'm keep I'm, I'm losing track of days. It's Wednesday, June 22nd, and I am uh, back at Montrose Beach. I did not spend the night here. I went back to my hostel and, and returned this morning. I wanted to see the park and also the skyline um, in the daytime. And it's a cooler day. It's overcast. It's the first day in almost two weeks where I don't wake up and feel like the sun is smacking me on the head. So I see the skyline of Chicago with the Sears Tower, you know, sticking out with its two antennas, a little bit like uh, the world's largest uh, taser gun. And uh, I'm actually not killing time, but I'm just relaxing, waiting for my uh, my morning uh, activity, which uh, which is kind of interesting. A man called John Wood emailed me this week. He said he had seen my interview on the Michael Shermer show and that he was interested in my JFK book and he'd like to talk more about it. And then he sent me a link to his website and lo and behold, I noticed he lives in Chicago and I just happened to be, uh, you know, staying about uh, five miles from his house, not even. So we're meeting for breakfast this morning. Uh, John is, um, you may not have heard of him, but um, he is a playwright, he is an author, uh, he's also an actor, and a Vietnam veteran. So I'm sure all of that will lead to some interesting conversation, along with uh, uh, the Kennedy uh, stuff. Uh, most importantly though, I want to ask him what it felt like to get his ass kicked by Liam Neeson in the movie Dark Man. Uh, there's actually a, a scene there and you can go to YouTube if you want. You can put Pink Elephant Dark Man and you'll see the scene where, where John uh, refuses to give uh, the character played by Liam Neeson, I forget his name, uh, his prize at the carnival. And then uh, Liam, as he does, because he has a particular set of skills, uh, decides to just kind of go ape shit on him and uh, break some fingers and throw him through a wall. So uh, that was kind of cool. Uh, maybe a little bit embarrassing, uh, <laughs> but that that is, uh, I think, John's most famous uh, scene out there, at least that I've seen, uh, whatever is on YouTube. So uh, we're going to go for breakfast in a little bit, and then uh, if I can, I'm going to try to see if I can get a ticket to watch the White Sox play against the Toronto Blue Jays this afternoon. So I might be the only guy rooting for the Canadian team, but you know what, somebody's got to do it. I love you, darling. Oh, it's good to be back. Oh, Tony Hastings. I'm gonna win for you the biggest, uh, fuzziest, pinkest animal doll in that rack. Yes! And then I gotta run. Sir. You always have to run. Why does it always have to be so dramatic? I have my hospital sessions, Jules. I'm not 100% cured yet. 
but they soon will be. Where is this place exactly? Pate, I want to be involved somehow. Can I at least take you back there? No. No, please, Julie. I don't want you to see me there. I don't want you to think of me as an invalid or, or some kind of a freak. <laughs> Uh, the pink elephant, please. I'm sorry, buddy. It don't count unless you're behind the line. Well, I was behind the line. Not hard. <laughs> I was standing right here with my girlfriend. Now, the pink elephant, if you please. No way. It doesn't matter, Pete. It matters. I won a pink elephant for my girlfriend. Why don't you just, uh, get lost, pal? <laughs> elephant. Quickly. Didn't you hear me? Weirdo. Just about lunchtime here on June 22nd. I am in, what is this, the almost north part of Chicago? This is an Old Town. This is Old Town, and I'm speaking to John uh, Lisbonwood, who is a former actor. Are you still acting? Uh, yes, I do. So he's an actor, a playwright, he is an author, he's a Vietnam veteran, uh, and uh, I don't know, what else do you do? I play softball. That's awesome. You get paid for it? Uh, no, but I... Well, I, uh, my, my body pays for it. <laughs> That's great. So, John, you called me or you emailed me out of the blue, and it was really interesting. Uh, I, would cons I would compare you a little bit to the, the opposite of Oliver Stone in the sense that you're an artist who takes an interest in the Kennedy assassination, and, uh, but your view is like the, there was only one man with one gun. Yes, my, my view is, uh, I, I use a term that uh, Ruth Payne had, that it just happened. And the theory is, uh, you look at the events that led him up to being in the window where he was on that date, they couldn't possibly have been planned. And what made you interested in the Kennedy assassination? I saw uh, the trial of Lee Harvey Oswald uh, on YouTube uh, with uh, Vince Bugliosi prosecuting and Jerry Spence defending. And, and to you, that convinced you that Lee Oswald did it alone? Yes, and I yes I, I, I always had that feeling beforehand, uh, but if you go on YouTube, all of a sudden I was inundated with all these conspiracy theories. So I just I started to look at some of them, and I came to the conclusion that they were so preposterous a child couldn't have made them up. But still, it's a cult. It's a whole subculture. 
Now, have you decided to produce any art on this subject, like any plays or, or movie scripts? Uh, not on that specific subject, no, not yet. Are you, are you feeling maybe the, the desire to create a, an anti-Oliver Stone uh, picture? That's right, uh, yeah. I'm going to call it Stoned Stone. <laughs> That's great. I'm, a, I'm throwing stones at stone. Um, now, you also have, uh, you've had a, a movie career. Uh, what would you say is your favorite role that you ever played? Uh, let's see. Uh, well, I, I was on How the West Was Won. It was a miniseries. That was, that was a, a Western? Yes, that was, that was a Western. And uh, I did an episode of Magnum P.I. and Blue Knight. Uh, that were very good, and uh, I did a movie that I had the lead, but under no circumstances is anybody ever going to find out the name of that movie. That <laughs> it came up on old bad good movies, so I'm going to leave that dangling. Okay. Is it a blue movie? Blue. <laughs> I wish it was. I wish the screen was actually black. <laughs> I see. Because, you know, Kevin Costner did some blue movies before yeah. he starred in Oliver Stone movies. Yeah, I know. Yes, I know. There's a famous quote in Hollywood. Is uh, I think Victor Mature made it. He says, I'm no actor, and I have 43 movies to prove it. So that, that's my philosophy. Now, there is a... F I, I want to bring this up, and I don't know if it's embarrassing to you, but there is a famous scene in the movie Dark Man uh, where you get your ass kicked by Liam Neeson. Yeah. Um, did you actually lose any fingers or, or uh, get a concussion in that scene? Well, yes, they broke every single of my fingers, and it hasn't repaired since. So, right, folks, to break it to you, it was a rubber hand. <laughs> I, I think I kind of noticed that. The special effects were not super-duper. Yes, I took my sister to see it, and they, they threw me through the back of the... Uh, uh, the booth, and everybody in the audience cheered, and that. So I was. That's how I impressed my sister. How was it working with Liam Neeson? Uh, very, uh, he was very good. It was a very, uh, it was a very tense situation. The uh, movie was a little behind, and the Cohen brothers had to come in and kind of support it. But everybody was. I have never had a moment of problem with any actor in Hollywood, and I, I've done like forty shows. And now Sam Raimi is a world famous director. Yes, he is. Uh, what was it working with him, and would you like to work with him again? I'd love to work with him. You know, I uh, have never seen him after that, but uh, if I ever find out he's doing a movie, I'll, <laughs> I'll give him a call. Now, if you had to meet Liam Neeson again, how would you show him that you also have a certain set of skills? Uh, I, he's, I wouldn't approach him. He, you know, he, he, uh, he's very high-strung, and... Uh, uh, but you know, I might, I don't know why, I'm not, I, don't, I can't impress him. Anyway, he's twice as tall as I am, so I would have to look up to him. He's also from Northern Ireland, so he probably knows how to kneecap people. Yeah, yes, he is, and he might mistake me for a leprechaun my size. <laughs> um, last question. Uh, you saw some action in, uh, in Vietnam. Yes, um, what was that like, and how did it uh, mark your life? Well, the main thing, uh, my main uh, duty assignment was I was a surgical assistant. Uh, I spent most of my time at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and uh, all I can say is, with all these problems we have with the shooting, if they would show everybody in this country what a bullet does to the human body, this would end tomorrow. 
Wow. I, I don't want to say anything funny on top of that because that's, uh, that's a strong point. Look, John, I really appreciate having breakfast with you. I appreciate meeting you. I hope we stay in touch. Yeah. And I really wish you well, both in reading my book and writing some of your own. You'll hear, I, I'm, I'm going to give you a review on uh, Amazon. I am looking forward to it. There's some other people on there who need a, a counter review. That's right. That's right. Well, uh, like, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, it's like a plus X and minus X. We'll, we'll knock those guys out. Excellent. Go White Sox. Go White Sox. Yeah, I'm a Chicago White Sox guy. bleachers, the nosebleed section of the Guaranteed Rate Stadium here in Chicago. Uh, after my breakfast with John, I drove down, uh, tried to find my way, almost got lost a few times, and I'm now enjoying an afternoon off uh, with a little baseball. Uh, Blue Jays are up one nothing. Uh, I'm right on the first baseline in the, uh, well, it would be foul ball territory. It would have to be a pretty damn long foul ball for me to catch something from here. Uh, 10 bucks wasn't bad, so the parking cost me 27 So uh, you do the math, and uh, it's probably better to take uh, public transit next time. Great day to take an afternoon off, forget about conspiracy theories, and to focus just on uh, the great old American game. You will give 110%. That's impossible. No No one can give more than 100%. By definition, that is the most anyone can give. Perfect. Yeah, Come on, nuts. Please, please, I want to make the team. Clemens, did I make the team? You sure did. I did. Woohoo! Woohoo! In your face, strawberry. Wait a minute. Are, are you Ken Griffey Jr.? No. Sorry. Didn't mean to get your hopes up. Hmm. All right, Monty. It's up to your managerial skills. What to do? Smithers, massage my brain. Yes, sir. Hit a home run. OK, 
Okay, Skip. <laughs> I told him to do that. Brilliant strategy, sir. We're seeing a little life now from the, uh, the fans, although Toronto's up 7-0 with a grand slam home run by Bo Bichette. Let's see if they can make something happen with a man on first. question will be uh, how to get out of the parking lot. So maybe I'll just leave the car there for a while, walk around, and uh, discover a little bit of the south side of Chicago. Maybe I'll find some deep dish pizza somewhere, or uh, some rough guys who want to mug me. Either way, it'll be an experience. It is almost 8 p.m. on an absolutely lovely, beautiful, and enjoyable day and completely improvised because I really had no plans for today. Uh, pretty much my, my road trip plans ended yesterday and um, John Wood contacted me out of the blue and we had a great breakfast. A baseball game was great. It wasn't great for the home team, but I really enjoyed it. And then I went out for uh, beers, some chicken wings. I mean, I'm going to have to diet after this trip, I, I admit. Uh, and I'm finishing it off at another beach. Last night was the Montrose Beach. 
now it's the 31st Street Beach. So they're kind of at opposite ends of the city. The other one's in the north side, this in the south side. It would be too simplistic to say that there's, that was a white beach and this is the black beach, but you definitely see a difference in the demographics. Um, even the type of music that you hear, you know, more like Beach Boys over here, there, and more, uh, more reggae, kind of bluesy hip-hop over here. Um, seeing the sunset right beside the skyline of Chicago. It really is a gorgeous day. Um, great way to finish a road trip. It's not quite finished yet, but uh, I, I feel blessed. I feel blessed, you know. Uh, I haven't seen the bill yet, so when I get home, I'm sure I'll have a little bit of a heart attack uh, looking at my credit card bill. But I think it's all been worth it. This is stuff that I've been wanting to see for a long time, and um, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I just hope that uh, it, uh, it meets expectations when I turn this into a... A podcast. I have no idea how I'm going to do that at this point. I've got probably more material than I need, uh, several hours. So some stuff is going to have to fall on the cutting room floor. But all things considered, I would say this was a success. So this is pretty much uh, the end of today. I'm going to be going back downtown. Now, if I feel adventurous, I might go see if there's a blues bar near the, uh, the hostel. But otherwise, that's the end of the Chicago trip. And tomorrow I'll be driving to Cleveland. Uh, since I'm staying with friends, it might be a little bit more low-key, but we'll see. I'm sure there's a few things. I'm sure there's plenty of things to do in Cleveland. And having been a, a Cleveland Browns fan for many, many, many years, ever since I was in high school, actually, I'm sure there'll be something to see or purchase. So that's it. Have a great evening. And uh, enjoy the sunset in your own imagination. Thursday morning, June 23rd, almost 8 a.m. Trying to get back to my car in time before the uh, the uh, the payment kicks in and I get ticketed for parking in a payment zone. Parked the car underneath the uh, the L train last night. First of all, it was closer to my uh, hostel, so I could do multiple trips to pack the car. Also, thought it kind of be cool to be parking underneath or right inside a uh, chase scene from Batman but there's a good reason why you shouldn't be parking under the L train first one is the uh, the payment rules are kind of uh, schizophrenic some places you have to pay for night parking some places you don't but the most important one is that some schmuck threw I think it was coffee all over my white car from uh, from up top um, at least I hope it was coffee. I pray it was coffee. Uh, so I'll probably need to hit a car wash at some point. Uh, and now I guess I'm, I'm heading out of Chicago. I ran up the street to try to get a Starbucks cappuccino to, for the long ride. But uh, the place was uh, shut down. So uh, I don't have time to hunt for new ones. So we'll have just go caffeineless and see what happens. So uh, here's to a nice three days in Chicago and hopefully a peaceful road ahead to Cleveland. Um, I might chime in a little bit about some Chicago conspiracies. I've been uh, looking for some. Um, 
but I guess most of them have to do with mobsters, and that's not necessarily my, uh, my field of expertise. made it through the uh, morning traffic to get out of Chicago. wasn't too, too bad, but I always get nervous in uh, city traffic. Um, and I'm on the outskirts of the city now and headed towards just highway country. Um, so two conspiracy theories I can think of about Chicago. Well, the first one has to do with the Kennedy assassination. And um, many people, particularly Kennedy opponents, uh, suspected that the mafia had rigged the election in Illinois, which um, helped give uh, Kennedy just enough votes, along with those of Texas, uh, to get enough um, electoral votes and the Electoral College votes in order to defeat Nixon in 1960. And, and, and some of that is based on some truth. There, there's no doubt that there was a strong push to support Kennedy in those two states, and these were not states that were necessarily that pro-Kennedy. Uh, the way you explain it in Texas, while well, Lyndon Johnson was able to uh, pull a lot of Southerners to uh, to think that, well, Kennedy's worth a shot. At least he's got a he's got a, a Texas he's got a Texan behind him. Uh, Illinois is a little bit different, except that, well, the mayor of Chicago, uh, Mayor Richard Daley, was able to mobilize a lot of the Irish Catholic vote. As for the Italian vote and the uh, working class vote, uh, a lot of the unions. Uh, really, really pushed for Kennedy in 1960. And many of those unions had links to the mafia. So there is a kind of a mafia electoral connection to uh, the Kennedy vote being high enough uh, to make him win Illinois in 1960. Um, There's a a famous book by Seymour Hersh called The Dark Side of Camelot uh, that tries to explain a little bit of that. And, And, I mean, Hersh is no deep admirer of Kennedy. He, he, he highlights a lot of corruption or other types of goings-on that were uh, unethical in the Kennedy White House. He lays out this story, which unfortunately he gets third-hand through, uh, I think it was Nancy Sinatra, who got it from her dad, uh, Frank Sinatra, who got it from Sam Giancana, who allegedly sent his lawyer to meet with Kennedy's father, uh, Joe Kennedy Sr., in order to uh, make some kind of an agreement on, on on getting the vote out in Chicago. Now, the thing is, even if that happened, and it's hard to prove, uh, a lot of that, in Hirsch concedes, was legal. It was driving old ladies to the polls and trying to uh, mobilize the uh, union meetings to, to see that Kennedy was going to be um, uh, more pro-union than... Um, uh, than, than uh, Nixon, which is kind of strange because the Kennedys had been fighting racketeering in the Senate, uh, both John Kennedy as a senator and Bobby Kennedy as an attorney during the 1950s. But there's another reason why the mafia would have favored the Kennedy administration, uh, or at least a Kennedy administration over a Nixon administration. And that has to do with Cuba. Uh, Cuba had just gone communist uh, through Fidel Castro's revolution. 
And Kennedy was offering to be very, very strict on Cuba and perhaps even getting rid of Fidel Castro. So did Nixon, but Nixon couldn't talk about it in the campaign because he was vice president. And as a member of the National Security Council uh, under President Eisenhower, Nixon was privy to information that no one else knew, and maybe even Kennedy. And that was that there was an invasion planned of Cuba by the CIA and with um, anti-Castro-Cubans slated for the spring of 1961, which, if Nixon had been elected, would have gone on as planned. Uh, When Kennedy was elected, he, he accepted the plan. Uh, it got bungled, and that's why he, he got a bit of a row with the, the CIA over this. But um, Nixon couldn't talk about this during their debates. And Kennedy could make um, Nixon look like a bit of a fool, saying, you haven't done anything about Castro in two years. Why should we trust you to become president? And Nixon, all he could do was promise that he would address a Cuban question once he was president. Now, Kennedy was also, I believe, in the committee, uh, like the Foreign Affairs Committee. So he's probably aware of some of this. So I could say there's a little bit of um, uh, a little bit of information manipulation by Kennedy, along with a little fear mongering with the whole idea of a missile gap, which was untrue, uh, that Kennedy used to his advantage to get elected. So how does it fit with the mafia? Well, the mafia uh, had a strong reason to support whatever candidate was most likely to uh, win Cuba back, to get their casinos back and their, their brothels. Uh, and so, as Seymour Hersh said, why, why would the mafia want to oppose Kennedy, even though he, was, he and his brother were fighting against the mafia in the Senate, because he was going to deliver Cuba? And so, once in power... Kennedy has all of these different plots about Cuba. The Bay, uh, the Bay of Pigs invasion fails, but then there's Operation Mongoose, which, contrary to what Oliver Stone and them say, Kennedy was fully aware. In fact, it was the Kennedy brothers who chose General Edward Lansdale to head up uh, Project Mo- uh, Operation Mongoose. And then there's the CIA assassination attempts on Castro, which certainly appear to have been known and condoned by both Kennedy brothers as well. So the mafia had little reason to kill Kennedy uh, as long as um, there was a chance of getting Cuba back. As Seymour Hersh said in an interview, why kill the goose who will lay the golden egg? So that's one of the reasons why I'm very skeptical of the conspiracy theories that would say that the mafia uh, was directly involved in killing uh, Kennedy. So that's the first conspiracy theory, and and I think uh, it's more of an unethical collaboration by the Kennedy family and the Kennedy White House later on also in the uh, the Castro plots rather than a conspiracy, particularly a conspiracy against the Kennedys by the mafia. It's more collaboration, but a lot of it was either legal or was done under the auspices of the CIA or some other national national security policy, I should say. Second conspiracy theory, if it is one, in 2006 there was a... Um, uh, a famous UFO sighting at O'Hare Airport. And this is uh, exceptional because usually UFOs, claims of UFOs are seen by a few people at best. But in this case, there were several dozens of people. I don't know the exact number. And a lot of them were actually uh, airport and uh, airport staff and airline staff. So these are people who were sober, who were working, who were of sound mind. And they saw what they called a circular object hovering over O'Hare Airport for uh, a very long, well, several moments, I think many minutes. 
maybe even dozens of minutes. Now, the alert was sent out that there was an object that appeared to be hovering above an airport. This is after 9-11, and of course, it's a secure facility, or at least it's, it's, it's you know, you don't want uh, planes uh, running into objects or, or some space machine attacking uh, a civilian airport. And this was called in, but the FAA looked at it and decided not to investigate. And it was the same with some local scientists. And many ufologists were up in arms, and they thought this is all part of the cover-up of um, that there's life from other planets visiting us and that the American government is fully conscious of it. I think there's a simpler explanation. Uh, first of all, this object, if it was an object, I don't think it was an object, uh, was described in many different ways by different people. Not everybody agreed on its size, from 5 feet to 30 feet, so it was pretty small if it, if it was an object. Um, okay, most people said it was circular and kind of a grayish color, I think, but it made no lights. It did not appear to move, right? People said it hovered. It was not detected by radar. So it had, unless it has some advanced cloaking, well, it wasn't cloaked, but some advanced was the word uh, stealth uh, technology, and that you have to assume exists uh, and that it can exist in a spaceship hovering above then it probably was not an object. It was classified as a weather phenomena. And um, what's interesting is I looked into this and I looked in, into other claims of flying saucers that turned out to be a particular type of cloud that we call a lenticular cloud. They don't tend to happen in places like Chicago or much of the Midwest. They tend to happen more in the Rockies where there are circular air uh, movements that sometimes punch a hole in the sky or have a swirling effect so that a cloud looks uh, rounded and sometimes even flattened to the point that it can look saucer-like. And uh, sometimes I've shown some of these pictures to my students. They're very unusual. And I've seen one of them myself. It was very interesting. I, I come from Montreal. I live near the airport. And once I was driving home uh, from dropping my son off a few years ago at daycare, and I saw a hole in the sky in the, the kind of the cloud cover and a kind of a not not so much a saucer shape it looked more like a slide shape but that was kind of uh, leaning out of it it really looked like someone had cut a hole in the in the clouds and a part was kind of like a like a, the lid on a bathroom garbage can was kind of uh, you know uh, had been flipped askew and it's interesting that this this happened near an airport and this is the same thing I read about the O'Hare phenomena, that when planes go up into the sky and down, depending on the weather, uh, water vapor can crystallize very quickly. The plane can punch a hole into the clouds through the change, the, 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 the rapid heating of the air, and then the crystallizing of the air that leaves something looking like a hole and sometimes a cloud-like formation that's rounded. And, that's, and that, I think, can explain uh, what many people saw at O'Hare, because no meteorologists uh, or other similar scientists saw this particular phenomenon, but they had seen things like that before. And there were the ones that were most unimpressed by the various statements of people who said they know that this was you know, a flying object and it was not from this world. Well, no one's an expert to know that, but many people are experts to know what looks like an object not from this world, but is in fact a strange weather phenomenon. There was a cloud cover over Chicago at that time. Uh, it was a, a particular cool day. 
uh, and that might explain why this this very strange cloud formation, which existed only for a few minutes, uh, was seen by so many people, not detected by radars, and in the end kind of got swooshed up into the hole and became nothing. It, it dissipated. Um, and so that's that. That's the O'Hare UFO um, sighting. Now, I, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, feel free to email me and let me know if you think that uh, I'm up the I'm up the creek here. Uh, but I think that's the simplest explanation for one of the most famous um, UFO sightings, mass UFO sightings of the last 30 years or so. So that's that. I'm going to get back on the road and drive to Cleveland, and um, and then we'll see when I get to Peter's house. Good morning. Uh, is it morning? It's afternoon. It's 1 p.m. on Saturday, June 24th. No, Friday. Friday, June 24th. Uh, for people in Quebec, this is a national holiday. It's the Fête Nationale or Saint-Jean-Baptiste. Uh, not too many people celebrating that here in Cleveland. So I got to Cleveland yesterday and I'm here with my buddy Peter Wilkinson. Say hello, Peter. Hello. Uh, so Peter and I are driving to the... Uh, well, where are we going? The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Sweet. So we're going to find out how Hendrix died, or did he? Um, now, I had a pretty long drive yesterday from Chicago. It was very pleasant. Lots of, um, lots of farms, lots of uh, greenery. Um, gas was a lot cheaper than in Illinois, thank goodness. Uh, I did like my stay in Chicago, but I have to admit I didn't see a lot of the downtown just because the price of parking was insane. But I did chat a bit with some of the uh, interesting... Uh, people who who lodged in the hostel. It was a nice hostel. Uh, some of the people were uh, very pleasant. This young man from Brazil, we chatted a bit. I introduced him to hockey. I had him watch the overtime of, uh, I don't know, it was game four of the Stanley Cup finals. So uh, he wasn't even sure what was going on on there, but uh, I got to explain a bit to him. There was a young man from India. Um, all he was interested in is finding some weed. So uh, he was like 21 years old and craving a good joint so that's pretty much all he talked about although I think he was drunk out of his mind and then there's a guy from the Philippines who of course did not look Filipino at all because he was an American living I don't know if it's an exile or if he's got work there but I didn't dare ask you know it's like the kind of person you think maybe they're like part of a drug cartel anyway so uh, we exchange a few stories but I tried to uh, not tell him where I live um, so once I got to Cleveland and I found Peter. Peter took me to what might just be paradise on earth. What did you call that restaurant? Texas de Brazil. Texas de Brazil. It's one of those Brazilian restaurants where people walk around with meat on skewers and they say, would you like some sausage? Would you like some flank steak? Would you like some, I don't know, bison? Uh, what else? Is, ostrich? What else are they serving? Pork and sausage and uh, chicken, chicken drumsticks, all sorts of stuff. And with a magnificent salad bar, I think I uh, I think I had three or four helpings, uh, and then and then there was cake. Uh, so I came back thoroughly stuffed, uh, had a mild heart attack in my bed from all of that food, 
Um, but just before that, Peter initiated me to something else that um, blew my mind, pardon the pun, and that is the television show Game of Thrones. Now, I'd heard about this. I had a friend who read the novels, but I didn't quite expect as many boobies as I saw. Is this why you watch it, Peter? No. No, of course not. <laughs> no, no, no. We don't do that. Uh, but you are a uh, Lord of the Rings fan, aren't you? Absolutely. So for you, it was the swords and the political intrigue that draw you to uh, Game of Thrones. Yes, well, the political intrigue is one of the features of the uh, of the show. So, yeah. so come come for the uh, fantasy political intrigue. Stay for the boobies. Exactly. Yes. So and that was violence. Don't forget the violence. Don't forget the violence. So uh, if we can tonight, after the uh, Stanley Cup hockey game, where we're hoping the Colorado Avalanche will uh, will destroy the uh, Tampa Bay Lightning, because you know what, Florida. Uh, hockey does not belong in Florida. In fact, it doesn't belong anywhere where there isn't any snow uh, during the year. So we, we believe that Colorado should destroy Tampa. Do you agree? I agree. All right. So we'll be hoping for that. And then after that, I think we will finish the, uh, the, the next eight seasons of Game of Thrones. It'll be a, a hard run, but we might be able to do it by dawn. It may be a lot of violence. But, you know, like I said, sometimes, you know, when you like a show enough, you feel you, you kind of owe it to all of the work they put into that show to at least watch every part. You can't watch a show like that without it breaking a few eggs, let me say. Just, just don't let your wife know that why you're watching the show. Right. <laughs> all right, so uh, we're heading to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as we are looking at the Cleveland skyline. I'm going to see if I can interview a few people. Uh, we'll need to figure out if there are some, uh, some Cleveland-based conspiracy theories. I'm sure I can come up with a few, and maybe we'll find some more in the uh, the Hall of Fame, right? Exactly, right. We might find some answers in the Rock and Roll That's Hall right. of Fame. Yeah. Have you been there before? Just once. And what did you find there last time? It was it was uh, the the thing that thrilled me the most was a 3D um, uh, immersive show for U2 concert. It was cool. very very well done, very good. That'll be cool. Uh, anything like uh, Clapton and Cream, uh, circa 1967? I don't remember. So long ago. But they have they they pretty much have all the all the uh, exhibits on all the major artists and and those members who've been inducted into the Hall of Fame. So. And do they give us some LSD uh, for the 1960s exhibit? No, they don't. They don't. Okay, too bad. We'll have to bring our own. Have to yes, it's uh, bring your own. They might charge a corking fee though. I should have asked the Indian kid at the hostel if he had some uh, some extra. What, what do you call them? I don't even know LSD. What does it come in a pill or? I don't know. Never used it. Don't you work in a laboratory? Not that type of laboratory. Okay. We could stop by work and just make some ourselves. <laughs> we could, yes. <laughs> All right, let's do that. Let's do it. Heading down towards the waterfront, we can see lake, beautiful blue Lake Erie in the distance. We're in West with all the, the what do you call them, the sailboats. And most importantly, to my right, over the elevated freeway, is the mecca of football. Well, at least it is to me. 
because since my since I was like 15 years old, I have tried to be a dedicated Cleveland Browns fan. And here we all go. It's the most beautiful shade of orange you'll ever see. Orange and brown, no logo, just a basic helmet, fans dressed up as dogs, eating dog biscuits. It really is the coolest team in the world. Unfortunately, they can't win a game. But that's going to change. That's going to change. I remember back in the 80s, Bernie Kosar throwing long passes, going almost to the Super Bowl, and then the damn Denver Broncos. It was like kryptonite. They killed him every time. And nothing since. So we're going to have to figure out why the Browns have sucked so much. But they're still cool. So this is the place to be if you hate yourself, have low self-esteem, and want to pick for a team that will always, always let you down. This is Jim Brown, the most devastating ball carrier in the history of football. I thought he was going to be a great back. It turns out that he's the greatest running back of all time. At the 13-yard line, 38-31 Denver. These are the toughest yards in football right here. Draw to Biner. Ernest Biner. Fumble. Fumble the ball, and Denver has recovered. Oh, my. Or have they? Let's wait for the official. Don Pilum. There's a war going on under that stack. There it is. Denver's ball at the two-yard line. for a while the class of 2022 Ooh. rock and roll hall of fame inductees uh all right so here we go in the performing category congratulations Wait, to Dolly Parton. Of i thought she yeah. said she didn't yeah, that she, she, i'll get to that okay by the way congratulations to savannah's high school dreamy crush duran duran and the boys of duran duran eminem the rhythmics carly simon oh that's gonna be so good lionel richie and lastly pat benatar for five artists this was their first time on the ballot. So oh what are your reactions? So does that mean they're in? They're in. That they are yeah. in. They'll yeah. all perform. They have a big show. You yes. Went yes. I went one, one year. year. It's so cool. Uh, the show's coming up. And this is, by the way, another side note that's great. This is the first time. You go out on your weekend night, and you are after America at that time. You're making small wages. You're in a racially prejudiced time. And you had to have an escape. And the legitimacy of the Flamingo Room experience and the Bill Street experience was something that took your mind totally away from those things. But if you had the right kind of personality and spirit about you, regardless of who you are, you could come in and check out the music. Rufus Thomas, Johnny Ace, Bobby Blue Bland. You know, these giants were playing little neighborhood juke Looking at that, you would see how powerful it would be connecting to an audience. Oh, 
Van Halen was a tremendously gifted musician. His style and his sound were completely unique to him. He had a massive impact on guitar playing, and I don't think there's anybody that's picked up the guitar since 1978 that hasn't been touched in some way by Eddie Van Halen's influence. I remember this is playing, and I remember this him as a friend. to be inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, is there any chance your next album will be called That's Bullshit? <laughs> tonight to induct Rush into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Rush, Fly by Night, Caress of Steel, 2112, A Farewell to Kings, Hemispheres, Permanent Waves, Moving Pictures, Signals, Grace Under Pressure, Power Windows, Hold Your Fire, Presto, Roll the Bones, Counterparts, Test for Echo, Vapor Trails, Feedback, Snakes and Arrows, Clockwork Angels, 45 years, over 40 million records, thousands of shows, selling out arenas all over the world. Their influence is undeniable. It is our honor to finally Induct Rush into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. on uh, Friday afternoon, uh, June 24th. Beautiful skies. I'm right in front of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and we're going to see if uh, some people would like to answer a few questions. Let's walk up here. Excuse me? Would anybody like to answer some questions for a podcast? Pardon? Well, the podcast is called Paranoid Planet, as you can see on my T-shirt. We talk about conspiracy theories. We're not on the crazy train. We just like to watch it go by. This guy here? All right, come on down, sir. You're the next contestant on Paranoid Planet. All right, what's your name? Brock. Brock, where are you from? Uh, Hershey, PA. 
Hershey, Philadelphia? Oh, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. I'm from Canada, so you've got to excuse me. I'm just hey. learning where everything is. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what brings you to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Uh, family vacation. We were, uh, we were staying in Lake Erie. We decided to come over here and catch a ball game tonight. Oh, catch a ball game? Yeah. Uh, who's playing? Uh, Cleveland Indians and uh, uh, Boston Red Sox, right? Yeah. I noticed you said Indians, not Guardians. Do you think? Do you, do you have a problem with the change of name? I kind of do, a little bit, yeah. 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 You like the old Indians? I do, yeah. Who are the Guardians? They're the baseball. I guess they're the baseball team. I don't know. Is it the Guardians of the Galaxy? I apparently, I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> so, have you learned anything new here at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Uh, a couple things. Um, just a lot of the clothing and people stuff. It was pretty neat. There was a lot of stuff in there that uh, just a lot of the memorabilia and stuff like that was pretty cool to see. So, favorite band or performer? Oh my. Um, Metallica. Just got to be top three. Awesome. Can you sing us a, a couple lines from Metallica? <laughs> uh, I'll, get you I'll get you started. I'll get you started. Darkness imprisoning me. All that I see. Absolute horror. I cannot live. live. I cannot die. Uh, I don't know. Body my only cell. Come on, man. I'm from Canada, and I can I can sing this. Um, let's see. Okay, let's try your cons uh, conspiracy theories. Do you think Elvis faked his own death? No. No, you don't? No. Okay. Do you think uh, that uh, Bob Dylan has been faking being alive for the last 50 years? No. Is uh, Keith Richards a uh, shape-shifting lizard from outer space? <laughs> Is that your yeah. wife over there? Yeah, that's my wife, yeah. Yeah, she yeah, says yeah. yes. Always agree with the wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I, have, I have a conspiracy theory I'm working on, uh -huh. and that is the Cleveland Browns are so cool, and yet they can suck so much. Who do we blame for that? Please don't say the Jews. Uh, the players. The players sucked. Yeah, the players okay. sucked. Okay, so then there's no conspiracy. It's just God's will. It's just ability, okay. gifted ability. Are you a... Are you a Pittsburgh uh, Steelers fan? Of course, yeah. Of course. Okay, this interview is over. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Brock. You've been a good sport. son uh, team your name is uh, Tate Tate and your mom is Beth Beth and has Tate been a good boy fairly so it's his 18th birthday today he's a man today that means he can drink alcohol no. But in Canada, he could. So road trip to Montreal, eh? Pretty pretty much every other country but this one, yes. Uh, I love your t-shirt. Pink Floyd is awesome. So what draws you to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame today? Uh, I've always loved rock and roll, and I just, you know, she suggested I go there for my birthday, and I said absolutely. I think, that, I think you have a really cool mom. Mom, what's your favorite band? Oh, it's got to be Pink Floyd, Red Hot Chili Peppers, um, so the older stuff. The older stuff. Uh, Rush? 
Nah, not as much. Oh, that's the wrong answer. Sorry. But Pink Floyd is cool. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Did you go to a lot of Pink Floyd concerts when you were young? I did not. I'm not that old. Okay. <laughs> I tried to in 95. That's the last time they came in my city. It just been 18 at that time, so. Because if you had, I would have said, you have nothing to say to your son about not smoking weed. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I know that. Yeah. <laughs> been to a few other concerts like yeah. that. Have you ever heard of uh, a guy called Elvis Presley? Yes, I have. Do you think Elvis faked his own death? Absolutely. Mom? No. No, okay, we're going to have to talk about that over dinner tonight. Uh, what about Paul McCartney? Was Paul McCartney ever, did he ever die and was replaced by an imposter? I highly doubt it. Uh, playing devil, devil's advocate here, yes, he did. Oh, I like the, okay, so always picking what mom, uh, the opposite of mom says. Okay, last one. How long has Keith Richard been faking the fact that he's actually dead? Oh, that he is dead? Yeah, 30 years at least. I'd say the same. He's looked dead for much longer than that, right? Yeah. All right, last question. Uh, we're here in Cleveland. Are you guys from Cleveland? Uh, about an hour and a half south. Where is that? Amish country. Amish? Are you guys Amish? No, no. <laughs> you don't look Amish. No, I, don't, I don't think so. Can you make furniture? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, you're, you're halfway there. Yeah, in shop class, he did make yeah. some furniture. Well, that's good. So uh, next thing, all you need to do is build a barn now. <laughs> right. Okay, so here's my Cleveland conspiracy theory. Why is it that the Cleveland Browns can be so cool and yet they can suck so much? Who do we blame for that? Oh. Shape-shifting lizards? N no, no, we just make some bad decisions. Bad decisions. I say I'm a Steelers fan, so oh, coaches, no. players, yeah. fan base, all of it. Okay, so Roethlisberger, eh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he finally retired. I, I can honestly say it's, it was about time. Well, when I was your age, I was rooting for Bernie Kosar of the Cleveland Browns. Do you remember him? Oh, well, no, but yeah, <laughs> I've heard of him. There's a reason why you have a bright future and I'm on medication. Yeah, I had uh, two great uncles that played for the Browns. So. Wow, that's awesome. Which one? Uh, it would be a long time ago. My grandpa's brothers, Jim Houston and Lynn Houston. So Jimmy played in the... 60s on the championship team, Jim Houston, Mr. Dependable, they called him. How much coke did he consume? None. He was good. It was back before that. That they they weren't billionaires and they didn't do drugs and they didn't do. Then my guess is he didn't play for the Browns. Oh, he did. <laughs> well, thank you very much. You've been a great sport. Uh, I would say go Steelers, but that would be like reneging my own faith. <laughs> All right, thank you very much. Take care. Thanks. Hall of Fame because apparently I've got some groupies. These people are calling me over and they want to talk to me. So what is your name? Joan. Joan, who are you here with? Jim, Nina, Bill, Steve, and Carm. So what brings you to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? A wedding. A wedding? Mm-hmm. We're here for a wedding, so while we're here for the weekend for the wedding, we thought we'd come to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh, no one's getting mar uh, married in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Not that we know of. Did Elvis fake his own death? No. Are you sure? No. Have you seen him since? Well, yeah, he's in there. In in this guy? No, no. 
Oh, in the building. Okay, you got to be careful where you point. Is Paul McCartney, uh, the Paul McCartney that we know, is he an imposter? No. No, we've seen him. He looks the same. But I've listened to the White Album backwards, and I'm pretty sure it says that Paul, was it Turn Me On, Dead Man? Paul is dead. We've seen Paul McCartney. We've seen him twice, and uh, I believe it's the same Paul McCartney. But in the 60s? No, no, we didn't see him in the 60s. We've seen him more recently, but I believe it's the same Paul McCartney. Have you heard of the Tragically Hip? I've heard the name. But you haven't heard them? If you were Canadian and you didn't know who the Tragically Hip was, we'd have to throw you into Lake Erie. Well, thank goodness I'm not Canadian then, huh? That is a good thing. Do you know where Canada is? I do. Can you point to it? It's north, but I don't know which direction. <laughs> here's here's a hint. There's a big lake right beside us. It's on the other side. <laughs> yeah, you see, they're, they're pointing. They're pointing. All right, it's okay. It's it's, it's the red. <laughs> That's great. All right. And how long has Stevie Wonder been faking that he's blind? Oh my. <laughs> I would guess that would be all his life then, huh? I guess it would have to be. Well, thank you all for being such good sports. I wish you well. Uh, where are you from again? New York State. New York State. So you're not Jets fans, are you? I don't remember the Jets winning anything, including games. Super Bowl. They win. A, they won a Super Bowl. They did win a Super Bowl. Get, it was that in the '60s when you were stoned. <laughs> it was in the '60s. Yes, it was the third Super Bowl. I think it was the LSD. It could have been. Thank you very much. Take care. Go Browns. <laughs> and I put it on, and it said very clearly, number nine. And when I played it backwards and spun it backwards, it said, turn me on, dead man. Turn me on, dead man. Whew. I freaked. Turn me on, dead man. 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 I forgot a small addendum. Uh, Peter is a big Star Trek fan, are you not? Yes. So I've got a joke for you. Um, what did uh, Mr. Spock find in the Enterprise toilet? Probably something to do with Klingons. Uh, good, good choice. Actually, it was the captain's log. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> Anything from the landing party? They should be sending up a report momentarily, Captain. Oh. Something wrong. I... <laughs> Most illogical. addendum to my captain's log uh, since we're talking about toilet humor on my way from uh, Oklahoma City to Merrimack Missouri there were a lot of um, big um, signposts on the side of the highway what do you call them bulletin boards um, 
usually it's a bunch of lawyers, you know, offering you millions of dollars if you sue somebody because you got in an accident. But for some reason in Missouri, they really like their sweets. And so there were a lot of ads for various um, um, uh, candy factories and things like that. And there was one that particularly caught my attention. It was called the Uranus Fudge Factory. And I was wondering, boy, that is an unfortunate name for a candy shop. But I think they did that a little bit on purpose because right underneath it said, the best fudge comes from Uranus. Yum. Mm. Let me show you Uranus, okay? All right, there's Uranus right there. You see it? You see it? Dad was my anus. Good morning. It is uh, Sunday, June 26th, 9.30 a.m. I am uh, parked in front of uh, Peter and Yubia's house. Uh, we call her Yubia. Should they say Juvia, Jubia, Yubia? I don't ever know how to pronounce her name. But anyways, this is uh, Peter's wife I'm talking about. She's a high-powered attorney. We had some uh, interesting talks about uh, uh, her work as a um, defense attorney for immigration. Uh, we talked a bit about some of the, the issues uh, relating to um, human trafficking and, and forced labor. And in the end, you know, it's kind of interesting to see uh, a perspective, not only of somebody who works in labor immigration, uh, but Yuvia has also been a lawyer in Mexico and in Canada before um, uh, coming here to the United States. And so she, she's kind of seen immigration from different parts, particularly her having to immigrate twice. Um, and so uh, it's interesting to think about how the United States, you know, in some ways is a bit of a, a wacky place where people argue about guns and abortion incessantly. The last few days on TV uh, or seemed like a, a little bit of a media circus. At the same time, you know, so many people come to the United States thinking that this is going to be the land of opportunity, uh, despite all the things that Americans and, and anti-Americans or other people observing American affairs can clamor about uh, some of the crazy politics or uh, the excesses of liberty or, or whatever it is, left-wing, right-wing politics, there remains uh, a certain cachet to being able to immigrate and live in a country like the United States. Now, as a Canadian, I always felt like we had a little bit the one-up. You know, we, we, you don't hear a lot about violence and things like that in Canada, at least less. But still, it's still the number one destination of choice for people who are trying to, trying to flee a horrible situation in another country. And as Yubia pointed out to me, this is Latin America, it's Africa, it's parts of Asia, and, and even some parts of Europe, uh, where people would, you know, would love nothing less than to make a new life for themselves in the United States. So that's something we need to keep in mind, particularly in an age where it's easy to blame American government, American policies, or various uh, subcultures in the United States for many of the world's ills. It remains... Uh, a country that is highly attractive uh, to people who have known slavery, who have known corruption uh, on a massive scale, government conspiracies, real ones. There is no perfect place to go to, but at the end of the day, sometimes need to balance out uh, the good and the bad, and it still remains a, a very attractive place to be. And even as a Canadian, who sometimes I feel, uh, you know, Canada is better than the United States in many ways, there's a lot of good here, and in some, some things are even uh, better. Are Americans more paranoid than people on the outside? Yubia th 
seem to think that well, it it really depends on what you know. Maybe when it comes to gun gun control, uh, people do uh, have uh, very very strong opinions. Some of them may or may not be based on um, the reality. Uh, I think she didn't say this, uh, but looking at some of the the news coverage recently of Roe v. Wade being overturned, uh, I see a lot of the same type of sentiment. Uh, I think it's okay for people to be either happy or unhappy with that change of events, but sometimes it seems as if the the emotions are over the top. And maybe that's one thing to say about the United States. Everything is large, including the emotions. Um, Everything appears to be world-threatening or world-ending or world-changing, and uh, maybe that comes with the culture of liberty here. People are not thinking in terms of what will happen uh, in the next generation or two, but what will happen in the next electoral cycle. And so short-term thinking uh, is very strong, both for the good and and for the bad, I guess. So this is uh, my last morning log of a long uh, road trip. Big thanks to both Peter and Yuvia and their daughter Nicole for having me over for for three days. It's been relaxing. Uh, It's almost as if the road trip is over because I've, I've, I've managed... Uh, for the first time in a while to take some time off and sit and read and nap on their couch uh, as well as visit some of the local sites like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So it's been great to reconnect with friends. I've been wanting to visit them for a long time and it's always nice uh, on the road not to have to stay in a, in a hostel or a campground or, or something like that. So thank you very much Wilkinson's. Uh, I'll see you again soon. I've got several hours of driving to do, but I have one more stop, and that is to visit Professor Michael Barkin in Syracuse, and I will be doing that in the late afternoon. And then after that, uh, if they'll let me back in, it's back to Canada, back home to my kids and my wife, and uh, going about all the things that I've been neglecting uh, for much of the month of June. So here we go. Let's uh, let's get things started. Let's get on the road, and let's hope uh, I don't get lost. There's a voice that keeps on calling me Down the road, it's where I'll always be Every stop I make, I make a new friend Can't stay for long, just turn around and I'm gone again Maybe tomorrow, I wanna settle down Until tomorrow, I'll just keep moving on So I am in uh, Syracuse, New York uh, in the house of Michael, do I say Barkin or Barkun? Barkin. Barkin. See, I was never, I never knew how to pronounce your name, so I apologize. I, I may have said that the wrong way uh, elsewhere. And actually, maybe it's, uh, it's kind of providential that I met you at the end of my trip rather than at the beginning, because had I come three weeks ago, uh, you were maybe less healthy, and I would have not known much. Well, I've been to the states before, but I would not have seen as much as I have in the last three weeks. Uh, so, Michael, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do or did for a living? Well, I'm a professor emeritus of political science at the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. I've been retired now for a dozen years, but I maintain a long-standing interest both in millennialism and in conspiracy theories. They're often, of course, related, although not always. And uh, conspiracy theories, when I started to look at them, were a fringe phenomenon. Uh, They were something that you found among uh, 
individuals and groups that were on the margins of society. This is in the 1970s? Uh, yeah, well, I first, yeah, I first got really interested in them a bit later in the 1980s, but it was, it was true even then. But by the time you get into, uh, let's say, the mid-1990s, that begins to change, and you see conspiracy theories gradually becoming a more mainstream phenomenon. Now, part of that, of course, is a function of first the internet and later social media. So technology allows what previously were fringe ideas to reach mass audiences for the first time and essentially to eliminate gatekeepers that had uh, frozen the, largely frozen them out. And then when you get to the 2000s, uh, there is the um, remarkable development that uh, uh, America has a president who in many respects is a, uh, is a conspiracist. Mm -hmm. While Donald Trump doesn't, as far as we know, have some single conspiracy theory that guides him, um, he certainly has been receptive to a whole slew of uh, individual conspiracy theories uh, that he has done much to legitimize. Mm -hmm. You're quite familiar with right-wing conspiracy theories. That was largely your focus. That has been my focus. Now, um, uh, my interest in right-wing conspiracy theories was, was largely driven by the fact that uh, I came to conspiracy theories out of research on the radical right. Uh, uh, I certainly acknowledge the fact that there are left-wing conspiracy theories. Um, I just have not studied them, okay. but uh, the left... Uh, uh, has uh, just as much a propensity for thinking in those terms as the right. Okay, Richard Hofstadter, the American historian, had said in the 60s that conspiracism is largely a product of right-wing paranoia. you disagree with that then? Well, as much as I respect uh, Hofstadter's seminal essay on the paranoid style, um, I think he was wrong there. I think he was speaking out of the particular political climate that existed when he wrote that essay. Mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. I think the left yeah. uh, is just as likely to think in these terms. Barry Goldwater was sort of the Donald Trump of his era. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm particularly interested in the book that you wrote called A Culture of Conspiracy. I think you wrote in the early 2000s, and then there was another edition. I think this is the second edition. That's the second edition, yeah. uh, which came out 10 years. I think it's 10 years after the, after the first, because in those 10 years, 
there were so many additional conspiracy theories that I think I have to, I added three or four more chapters. For example, there were a tremendous number of conspiracy theories that were generated during the Obama presidency uh, and that centered on Barack Obama himself. And I think you also added a new chapter on 9-11 and a couple uh, others, uh, right? Yeah, the 9-11, the 9-11 conspiracy yeah. theory. So uh, the early 2000s were particularly uh, fertile. Yeah, they kept you in business. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I, I wish uh, there was less business. Yeah. Well, if you sold more cups and t-shirts like Alice Jones, you could have made more money out of it. <laughs> Um, so let's stick with this book for a second. I thought you had a very interesting thesis in this book, A Culture of Conspiracy, because you look at the connections between right-wing militias and UFO conspiracy theories, and those tend to be considered as two completely different fields. How are they related? Well, I was, I was fascinated when I discovered that there was a slice of the UFO subculture, and I want to make clear I'm talking about a slice of the UFO subculture, not all of it by any means, um, that was just as conspiracy prone as, for example, uh, the militias, uh, and that they often shared concept about who was supposedly running the show, and I think it suggested a couple of things. One, that there was a body of concepts about conspiracy that was floating out there, and that could be taken, or people could reach out for it, regardless of where they were coming from. And secondly, that people with a tendency to distrust authority tended to seek what I term stigmatized knowledge. Mm -hmm. That is, knowledge claims that are not recognized by those institutions that we normally think of as validating knowledge claims, uh, universities, the scientific community, government agencies, major um, communications media, and so on. Um, so where you're talking about particularly subcultures that are deeply suspicious of authority, as was the case with militias and with people in the UFO community, uh, they tended to be attracted to those knowledge claims that were rejected by the knowledge-validating institutions. And uh, they went for what I call stigmatized knowledge claims. 
um, that they found believable precisely because they were rejected. Mm. So if the elites disagree with it, then there must be some truth That's to it. Right. That's right. If assumption. the elites disagree with it, it's got to be yeah, right. because the elites are lying liars who lie all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the elites uh, are trying to hoodwink the public. Yeah. So whatever the elites say or whatever the elites appear to validate as truth has got to be wrong. Could we call it a form of um, pathological denialism or, uh, you know, it, like, like cultish groups who turn in on themselves and will not accept any teachings except that of the great guru? Well, yes, in the sense that uh, it turns a lot of conspiracy theories into closed systems mm. that are non-falsifiable. So yeah. if you... If you say to someone who is deeply involved in a conspiracy theory, uh, hey, wait a minute, this part of the theory is incorrect because of this, this, and this, they may very well say, oh, no, that's not the case because this contrary evidence was planted mm -hmm. by the elite institutions yeah. in order to in order to mislead. So the evidence you. is not there. It's proof that the evidence was destroyed. That's or, right. Or hidden. And or everything yeah. outside of the conspiracy theory is, uh, by definition, uh, false because uh, it's a product of the conspiracy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You use another term in that book that I think is interesting, and maybe we should define it a bit, improvisational millennialism. There's two important words there. Should we explain millennialism first, and then what makes it improvisational for many conspiracy theories? Well, millennialism is, is any system of ideas that has as its aim or uh, intent the prediction or achievement of some perfect end state, some time in the future that will be a time of perfect fulfillment. Now, Like the coming back of Jesus and Christian yeah, theology. That, that's probably yeah. the most famous uh, uh, millennial system that uh, uh, Americans might be familiar with. What I was trying to get at with the term improvisational millennialism is that what we are seeing now are not only millennial ideas that come out of long religious traditions like Christian millennialism or Islamic millennialism or for that matter Marxist millennialism if you're looking yeah. for a kind of a, a, a long-standing secular the workers counterpart where, yeah. where you, you know classless society is the is the end state what you're getting uh, in in some cases is a millennial system that seems to be kind of cobbled together out of all kinds of different uh, elements that are idiosyncratic and are simply 
the product of uh, often of, of one charismatic leader of a movement. I'm thinking, for example, of Aum Shinrikyo uh, in Japan, the movement that, of course, became infamous because of the attempt to, in fact, not, not simply the attempt, but the actual use of gas uh, oh. to attack passengers in the Tokyo subway was system. Was it rice and gas? Is that what that was? The, the, I think it was rice and gas. Uh, I think it was rice yeah. and yes. I remember that. And, and there you, you had a movement that had some aspects of Buddhism, but it had all kinds of other uh, very strange aspects uh, that were the function of uh, its peculiar charismatic leader who had bizarre ideas about science, uh, who believed he could levitate himself. It wasn't um, really a Buddhist movement. It was a movement off by itself yeah. with characteristics that it shared with no one else. In the book you mentioned, uh, is it William Cooper and uh, the, the British soccer player there, um, David Icke, David Icke two well, men from different political ends of the political spectrum who both mixed the, the right-wing New World Order idea with a more kind of progressive idea of visitors from outer space. Yeah, uh, okay. David Icke, uh, one of the most widely marketed conspiracy theorists, largely because of his own publishing empire, has uh, a millenarian system uh, that uh, uh, keeps becoming stranger and stranger. <laughs> At least of all the, the shape-shifting lizards. I've been talking about that on my road yeah, trip. Yeah, the shape-shifting reptilians. Yeah. It's beyond bizarre, but there are people who believe it. Yeah, but it's the interesting mixture where there's kind of new age thinking I don't know if we would call it an anti-Semite, but there's definitely a lot of similarities to the protocols of Zion oh, I, I and think these other things. I yeah. think he's clearly an anti-Semite. Oh, okay, okay. I don't know if he ever actually said the Jews are controlling the world, but there there is definitely the same pattern, yeah, right, that you see in the right wing. Protocols, talks yeah. about the Rothschilds. Yeah. It's, uh, it's very strange stuff. So there is this increasing frequency with which people build systems of ideas that may have elements of traditional millenarian ideas, but uh, they cobble them together with all kinds of other ideas that may come from occultism, or anti-Semitism, or anti-Catholicism, or anti-Masonry, or all of them, mm -hmm. all of them combined. So uh, you can you can create your own system. So improvisational millennialism is a sort of a buffet where people predict the end of the world, but with no specific religious or political philosophy, they mix whatever seems yeah, to fit with yeah, their... Yeah, you create yeah. your own. Yeah, yeah. 
That's interesting. Okay, let, let me change the subject a little bit. Um, so I've spent three weeks intensely, you know, visiting your country from Syracuse down to New Orleans and Dallas and to Chicago. Um, there are some subjects that I've talked to people a lot, the assassination of, Mar uh, of Martin Luther King Jr., of President Kennedy. Uh, I've also talked about subjects like gun control, this, the January 6th riots, and just recently there's been a lot of um, intense, acrimonious talk on the news about uh, Roe v. Wade was uh, struck down by the Supreme Court. So let me ask you this. Are Americans paranoid? And if so, are they more paranoid than other nations? Well, I, I don't like to use the term paranoid. I didn't like Richard Hofstadter's use of it because it implies psychopathology. Hofstadter said he wasn't using it that way, but it seems to me it's inescapable when the when the word comes out, it implies not only that there's a belief in an enemy, but that the belief is incorrect, that it's really a phantom product of your imagination. Yeah. At the moment, the country is deeply uh, polarized. Mm -hmm. And, and here, I, I have to say, in all honesty, that we're entering territory that begins to move outside of my area of expertise, because, I mean, we're talking about American politics, which is not what I study. So you and your listeners need to understand mm -hmm. that. And the question of whether those who have a sense of an enemy are fearing a phantom, i.e. they're paranoid, or whether they really have an enemy, is not something that is always easily answered. Because mm -hmm. I was thinking, even on the abortion debate, which is not really a conspiracy issue, yeah. both sides, at least if you watch CNN, um, are acting like millennialists, as though the buck needs to stop right now or the end of the world will follow. Yeah, and, and I, I think here the fear is not of the other side. I don't think it's that, that the pro-life people are afraid of the pro-choice people. I think, I think uh, the fear on the part of the pro-choice people is with the is fear of the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. It's not fear of the pro-life mm -hmm. people. Uh, so you're talking here about a situation where there are three players. Uh, so that makes it that makes it okay. uh, more complicated. But it would be the same thing with gun control, right? Just we're reversing the sides of those who trust the government or not in these well, circumstances. Well, uh, here too it gets complicated because um, the government really isn't a player. Uh, I mean, it's true that Congress passed uh, a, a gun law, rather weak gun law, but uh, uh, the government really isn't a player here. The the the, the players are are essentially interest groups. Mm. 
the uh, the barrier to gun laws has essentially been the uh, gun lobby organizations like the National Rifle Association and uh, its uh, its supporters. The government itself really isn't isn't a factor except to the extent that members of Congress uh, are beneficiaries of contributions from supporters of the NRA. But so you don't you don't see this as a kind of a conspiratorial mindset spilling over into what we might call normal politics. Not with those issues, except that you've got the two issues that you've mentioned: abortion and gun control. And then, much more significantly, you've got the issues that have been raised by January 6th. Mm -hmm. That's much more important because uh, it raises issues about the nature of democracy, uh, the nature of the Constitution, the nature of the party system, a whole series of issues that normally are not posed at all. Okay. So no matter how shrill the gun control and abortion debates are, you see, you don't see them as attacking the fiber of American democracy. No. no. Whereas for January 6th, you see this no. is a much more dangerous I, issue. I, I mean, except to the extent, except to the extent that gun control and abortion are both seen as by many people and as far as the polls suggest apparently a majority of the population as eroding the legitimacy of the supreme court okay and that that becomes that becomes serious well, we'll, we'll let, let's take a step back because now we're getting to really serious material. We like to finish a bit more on the lighter side. Yeah. Apart from this book, is there uh, among the things that you've written or contributed, uh, what are you most proud of? Uh, that's a, an interesting question. I'm 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 particularly proud of that book. Uh, and uh, an earlier book, Religion on the Racist Right, which was about the Christian identity movement. And since you are a man of much experience and you've put aside your, your red pen for marking essays, what recommendation would you give to a younger person like me, or young, I'm not so young anymore, uh, getting into uh, the business of researching conspiracy theories? Oh my! Uh, Quit right now? <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, I think it's tremendously necessary to do it, if possible, to do it in a way which will reach an audience outside of academia, uh, simply because, uh, as I was saying earlier, it's not simply... Uh, fringe audiences that are being touched by this, but uh, that this is that conspiracy theories are having a real impact on larger societies, 
Uh, so to the extent that this kind of research can also be accessible to general readers and not simply to specialists, uh, may make a real contribution. Okay. Well, I have one last question, and it's a multiple choice question. Uh, who is secretly running the world? Is it A, the Illuminati, B, the Patriarchy, uh, C, the Bilderbergers, or D, the ancient and accepted order of speculative haberdashery, better known as the Knitters? Uh, well, of course, uh, if I knew the real answer, uh, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't tell you. Because <laughs> that means you're part of it? Well, uh, yeah, and, and the, the, the answer that I would like to give you haven't provided, and that's none of the above. Okay, that's fine. You can always add the answers, yeah, none of the I, above. I will say none okay. of the above. Ha had you heard of the knitters before? Uh, no, I haven't. That's because I invented them. They're the secret society of my podcast. Anyone who is a guest on my podcast becomes an honorary member of the the knitters. So congratulations, well, Michael Barkin. Well, especially if they're running the world. I'm you are now a knitter. Happy to be a member. <laughs> we'll send you your golden needle in spool <laughs> through the mail. <laughs> or maybe I'll just give you a book. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. My pleasure. Well, that was my interview with Professor Michael Barkin, and I thought it was quite pleasurable. You know, it's a great thing about the internet. Uh, young people might not realize this, but it used to be really, really hard uh, to make friends and colleagues uh, when they were cities away, and now they're basically just a couple clicks away uh, on the internet. So I, I'm really appreciative. It's a appreciative. It's a great way to end this road trip. Now all I have to do is drive back to the border, and but just before that. In the words of the great Kramer, I don't even know his last name, I like to stop at the duty-free shop, and then hopefully my family will still be home. America, America, God blesses me for me, don't know the words I have to learn from sea to shining sea. International passengers entering Canada, please go directly to Canada Customs, stand behind the red line, and have your passports ready, so we may proceed to the strip search much quicker. <laughs> Next. Buenos dias, senorita. Yes, welcome to Canada, Mr. Abercrombie. <laughs> Where are you from? Colombia. What's that fine white powdery substance? It's uh, icing sugar. Icing sugar? See, si, high-grade, uncut, 100% pure Colombian icing sugar. Well, what's it for? A birthday present. It's for Robert Downey Jr. Uh, not so fast. Forgot your passport. <laughs> Next. <laughs> Country of origin? France. Reason for visit? I am not going to blow up the embassy. <laughs> I am going whistling and skier. Enjoy your stay. Next. Yes, hello. Where are you coming from, and are you bringing anything into the country? I'm visiting from Britain, and I'm just bringing in a meat pie. <laughs> Freeze, dirtbag! Hands above your head! Security, put mouth alert. A dangerous situation here. Well,
well, it is Sunday, uh, June 26th, 10.30 p.m., and this is the sound of me just rounding the curb and getting close to my house. It's a long day's drive. I uh, got stuck in a rainstorm on the way out from Syracuse, so I guess that helped wash my car, uh, whatever junk I was carrying since Chicago. Um, the uh, duty-free shop was closed. Too bad. I was looking for a nice bottle of flavored gin, but I guess uh, we'll need to be drinking uh, dry tonic on its own. And uh, the guy at the border was uh, very nice. Very nice, maybe a little too nice. I think I could have walked in with a bag of grenades. I don't think uh, he would have said a thing. So uh, fortunately I did not. And no, this is not an invitation for people to invite me to the States so I could come back with a bag of grenades. And here is my house. My family has taken out the recycling, for which I'm very thankful. And let's see if they're still awake. And I see a little guy waiting right there by the door. Let's go say hello. Hello, mister. Ça va? Aren't you sleeping? You've been waiting for me? I'm going to go on another road trip. You want to come with me? No. <laughs> yeah. Hello. Hello. Pour l'hymne national canadien, pour le Canadian National Anthem, Madame Ginette Renault. May the force be with you. That was episode 6.4 of the Paranoid Planet podcast. It was brought to you by the letter B, some shrieking cicadas, a rabid lassie, the ghosts of Elvis and John Belushi, a large Italian family, the special skills of Liam Neeson, the sad sack Cleveland Browns, and, sadly, the memory of the 168 victims who died in the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing. Contact us at paranoidplanet.mail at gmail.com if you have any comments, questions, C-notes, or constructive criticism to send our way. We'll also take gift certificates for anything, including food, drinks, movies, and, uh, ladies' accessories. No questions asked, no questions answered, forget about it. And check out our website at www.paranoidplanet.ca for blog essays and related sources, our episode archive, our theme song contest, a voucher code to order my Kennedy book at a publisher's discount, and, maybe, a list of famous historical figures who now sleep with the fishes at the bottom of Lake Michigan. On behalf of Joan Lijo, this is Michel Gagné saying... 
Don't you try to stop us. We're on a mission from God. This episode was a Burden of Proof media production. We'll see you next time. about conspiracies, paradigm shifts, and critical thinking.